Not for me. All right, uh, I've been gone for over five months. I'm with you for a month, and then I'll be gone for another three. Um, for right or wrong, that's my life right now, but the benefit is I have a lot of time to uh, study, and so maybe too much. Uh, this is the first of hopefully four lessons on 1 Corinthians while I'm back with you all. Uh, and just please continue to be in prayer for me and my family and wisdom and decisions for the future. We've definitely missed you all. So, 1 Corinthians, what are, oh, some rules of the road. I hold the mic. If you're going to say more than 10 words, you need to wave me over to give you the mic. I don't really think we'll have time at the end. If it's something short, I can repeat it. I do a lot of online listening in my daisies. It's very frustrating if I can't hear the people's comments and questions. So mostly you teachers are at fault, but everyone can help. Stop talking until the mic's in front of you. Uh, those who are listening on live uh, feed right now, there's actually an embedded handout in there on the website under resources if you want that. And if you don't have a handout, you definitely want one uh, as we go through today. So, 1 Corinthians, when you hear about that book, what's maybe what something that comes in your mind? Subjects or passages that you're familiar with? Controversies, okay. Yeah, the 1 Corinthians, possibly with the exception of Galatians, is probably Paul's harshest letter, at least to Christian behavior. Galatians is more on their doctrine. In, uh, in 1 Corinthians, they are going to get scolded over and over uh, for lots of problems. What else? Nothing? No one's ever been married? <laughs> 1 Corinthians 13, the big love chapter. What about, another way of asking this, what are some essential truths that you think about and talk about or teach, and it's almost impossible to avoid 1 Corinthians if you're on that subject? Sorry. Resurrection, chapter 15. Great. Lord's Supper, almost impossible. There are other things about uh, our relationship, the freedom of the law. You could probably deal with Romans, but also 1 Corinthians 8 to 10 is a big one. I think um, biblical inerrancy and, and wrestling with how Paul is sometimes seems to be giving an opinion and what is God's word, what's my word, that's, that's a big subject. Okay, well, I'm not sure this was smart, but my main focus is to give you an overview of 1 Corinthians, but I wanted to try to do it in a way of maybe modeling, tell you how I approach the book, sometimes I study books this way, as another way of doing a real in-depth study of a book. If I start to get bogged down with that, I'll just do the overview. I'm not going to go through that table on your handout, but in chapter 3, Paul rebukes them for being infants. Despite this church has been going for three or four years now, they're still infants and they still need the milk of the word. And they ought to have grown by now so they could have solid food. There is an expectation that you would grow in your life. If you are alive, if God has made you alive, and you are being fed, you will grow, just like a baby. So if you're not growing, you're not being fed. You're not availing yourself of the word. And so I kind of tried to take that idea of a spiritual age and map it out. It's just my ideas. There's nothing hard and fast about any of these rows. But in general, hopefully you, you are availing yourself of, of learning, of reading yourself, making Sunday morning a priority. Because if you come to Sunday school and, and the service, you are already going to get both the expositional, you know, line-by-line -line teaching, 
but you're going to get the, the major themes of the faith taught from here. You're going to be fed. Better than that, I hope you're in a community group or a Bible study or a one-on-one -on -one discipleship, and you are going to grow. Find someone who's further along in the faith than you. They're not necessarily physically older, someone who is more spiritually mature, and demand from them that they teach you. Seek that out. And eventually, of course, the expectation is that you will find someone to disciple and feed. So my technique today that I'm going to talk about is for mature Christians. Someone who has read through the Bible, who has done multiple Bible studies. Otherwise, I, I'm throwing you into the deep end too much. Because I'm, I'm going to have you sit in a book for like three or four months type of thing. But for you who are mature, this might be something that kind of reinvigorates your study. Maybe you're kind of just going along and you, you need something to freshen up. And we probably would have to talk a little more one-on-one -on -one about the details here. So if you're newer in the faith, don't worry about the study so much as enjoy an overview of 1 Corinthians and get to know this book. All right, let's pray. Our Father, we ask you for your wisdom. You tell us in this book that we rely on the revelation of the Spirit for, to know spiritual truths. So take us out of our natural intellect. Let us see Christ. Let us share a bit of the passion that you gave Paul 2,000 years ago. And may we always grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. All right. Where do I do this? There we go. It's upside down. Second time. All right. So this is, this is basically what I'm saying. So the big thing for here is I'm going to have you read through the book fairly quickly, ideally in one sitting, uh, maybe two at the most three, because I want you to capture the author's major flow. You've got to realize in the ancient world, there was only so many opportunities to send a letter and get it to, part particularly if you're talking about a letter in the New Testament, a letter to the church. So you've got to assume Paul had, in this case, something on his mind. So only a couple things could be really swirling in his mind, even as he, he goes through lots of different subjects, answering their own questions, answering things that he's heard about them. He still has something overall he wants to get across to this church. You've, you've got to kind of assume. And so to be able to capture that, you kind of got to read it through and try to swim in that mental um, gymnastics as best you can. And then I'm going to have you build an outline. You know, you're going to kind of go back to maybe you read it through again. Maybe you're just looking at the headings in your Bible. You, you're going to build your own outline. You're going to try to do this on yourself. And then you'll read some other supporting biblical material. In our case, it's going to be the book of Acts because it talks about planting the church. But in the Old Testament, maybe you're reading a prophet and you're going to go to the kings and see what it says about that prophet. Or you're going to go to the New Testament and see what it says about that Old Testament book or person. You're going to try to sit there and determine a thesis. And then you're going to test that thesis. And then I'm going to have you read a commentary. Now, if you're younger in the faith, it's the first time you're ever studying a book, I would start with the commentary. Just pull out the commentary and let find a good commentary that Tim or someone suggests to you. Trust it, read it through, and start, let them and all their years of study teach you through that. So that's what I'm going to kind of model a little bit as we go through 1 Corinthians today. So as you read through the first time, Again, I just kind of want to read. I don't want to stop. I don't want to stop and study. Ooh, that's interesting. I want to get through it. But I'm someone who's going to jot little things down. Ooh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to jot this down and mark this and come back and think about it. I'm going to think about the author's running argument, especially Paul. He's pretty methodical. You know, he's more of a Western tradition and just kind of goes right through. 
that may not apply to every book out there. So here's some of the ones that I actually came up with in 1 Corinthians. I'm going to see things that I always see in a passage. For instance, in chapter 3, it talks about losing your rewards. You might be saved, but you're going to lose your rewards because I don't see enough fruit of your labors. Is that talking about every individual Christian? Or is it talking about ministers of the word? I'm going to write that down. I'm going to come back and study that. I have a preconceived notion, but I'm studying this book. I might as well suspend my beliefs for a little bit and come back and look at it afresh. But particularly in this kind of study, what I want to do is I'm going to think of things that are across the book that I might miss if I'm only studying a chapter at a time. For instance, why would women be told to cover their heads in chapter 11 when they pray and prophesy, and three chapters later they're told to keep silent? It doesn't matter what your views on, on all that is. At that time, women are to pray and prophesy and keep silent. That doesn't make sense to me. I'm going to write that down. I'm going to come back and look at it. In chapter 8, Paul says, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest my brother, I make my brother stumble. All right? I have freedom to eat meat, but my brother is concerned. I'm not going to eat meat. Chapter 10, he says, why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? That seems like a contradiction to me. I'm going to jot that down. And then there's just broader concepts. Like I said, Paul seems to say, well, this is my opinion. You don't really have to listen to this. And then he says, hey, if you don't accept that the things I'm, I'm teaching you are a command of the Lord, you won't be recognized as a prophet. He seems to assert his authority and defend his authority as apostle. And other times he says, no, th this is just my opinion. It's my sanctified opinion. Well, that's interesting. So the, the next time I read through, I'm going to have these kind of broad questions in mind. I had about 10 or 11 of those type of questions as I went through the second time. The other thing I see is sometimes we get, I, I, maybe it's just me, I get concerned like, oh, no, I have to have a position on everything. And some of this is really hard in 1 Corinthians. Sometimes there's a little nugget there that just soothes my soul. It's a little clear scripture that I can, I can just hold on to. For instance, uh, let's see. The whole stuff about singleness, it seems so counter to everything else. Paul encouraging singleness and am I supposed to be single? Am I more spiritual if I'm single? Then he says, I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote, your good, to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. Okay, until I figure out all this marriage singleness stuff, whatever God calls me to, the, the point is to have an undivided devotion to the Lord. That's Paul's main point. I, so that's something I can rest on right now before I figure out what I think about everything else in there. And then there's all this stuff about charismatic gifts of prophecy and tongues. And, uh, man, do those exist today? Are those real languages or angelic languages? I know there's all sorts of controversy out there. But 1412, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. What a great verse. What I, should I think about this? I don't know, but you know what? I'm going to strive to excel in building up the church. What can I do? I don't know my spiritual gift. Why don't you just try to build up the church and not label things, right? There, so there's, there's a way that you can kind of rest and just continue your study and not, not get hung up. All right. Let's go ahead and read. 1 Corinthians 1. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus, and our brother Sosthenes, 
to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ? God is faithful, by whom you were called in the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Now you'll find that this intro is quite strange, because this is not his tone in most of the letter. He is very optimistic and positive here, rejoicing in, in them being brothers and the great knowledge and not lacking in any gift. There's a lot of theology in that. God establishes his church despite how unfaithful we are. Verse 10, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has re been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanas. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand science and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. We'll stop there just for the sake of time. So I'm going to read it. I'm probably going to read it that fast, even to myself, as fast as you can. Well, maybe not too fast. You still want to think about the flow of the book. So obviously we don't have time to read the whole book. That would be nice. So let me just walk you through an overview if you go through. Um, I'm not good at this. All right. And I'll just read some select verses as we go through. So he's going to go on right there. I've already mapped out. Oh, we have factions. We're chasing after different men. And then I see this contrast of the wisdom and power of God as opposed to that of the world and that of men. Well, he's going to continue into chapter 2. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Well, how do we get the wisdom of God? He tells us in chapter 2. We, we rely on revelation. The natural person, does not natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. So now in chapter 3, that confidence of knowing that God is going to reveal himself and, and grab people by the Spirit... He says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. 
So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future. All are yours, and you are Christ, and Christ is God. And then into chapter 4, we see Paul starting to defend the apostles. There's, there's quite a bit in the letter about defending his own apostleship, his own authority. So chapter 4, verse 9, For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as least of all, as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we become a spectacle to the world, to angels, and to men. And into chapter 5, we see that, uh, he has heard about them, that they're tolerating sexual immorality, and we get a lot of our concepts of church discipline here. You are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother, if he is guilty of sexual immorality, or greed, or is an idolater, or reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such one. And then in chapter 6, he asks about lawsuits among brothers. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? Do you not know that the righteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And then there's a lot in the letter about sexual immorality. He hits it pretty hard in chapter 6. Flee from sexual immorality. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Romans 6 uh, talks about becoming a slave of God. You could say in here he's saying you've become a prostitute of God. You are not your own. He owns your body. Something that we'll see is very applicable to the Corinthian culture. In chapter 7, we've studied this, man, it's been years now. We went through this in depth about singleness. Only let each person leave. And then it, he mainly focuses on married and the singles and how don't despise each other. God calls to each one. He gives his own gifts. So accept the calling of God and embrace that diversity in your church. He talks about also the circumcised and the uncircumcised, the slave and the free. Verse 17, he says, only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. Chapter 8 starts uh, three chapters about Christian liberty and, and the law, in relationship to the law, among other subjects. He says in chapter 8, Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stomach block to the weak. I know I'm going very fast. I'm going to slow down later. In chapter 9, uh, we're gonna th this is going to be our subject next week. How much should we pay our pastor? A little tease. Uh, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. But then he talks about his freedom and how he's going to use the freedom for the gospel. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. We get so into our theological fights of what, what are my rights and what I'm allowed to do and <laughs> Romans 14 is the same. It's just not the emphasis of Paul and of God. What, what can I do? Now, that frees you a lot. You can do a lot of things other Christians don't like if it's for the gospel. Otherwise, you have the freedom to restrain your freedom. Uh, chapter 10, uh, this starts getting some pretty deep theological waters. I was kind of enjoying it. Um, but he, he looks at these Old Testament examples in the desert and how they fell. And he says, let these be an example to you, 
to flee from evil, to flee from idolatry, to flee from sexual immorality. Therefore, let anyone who, take, who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. So there's a lot in there about participation at the table. It's setting this up for um, chapter 11. First verse I ever memorized, 1 Corinthians 10.31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. In chapter 11, he commends them, and then he doesn't commend them. He's got a nice contrast there. It also gets into our sticky, sticky waters here. I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a ma- wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. And of course, the Lord's Supper, we hear these words a lot. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now in chapter 12, this is just great. We've got these two, all this one diversity in, in unity or unity and diversity, however you want to say it. Chapter 12, verse 4. Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. Something's going on at Corinth. It's absolute chaos. And he's trying to show, yes, I want, I love it, all these gifts, let's use them, but we've got to, we got to focus you guys a little bit here for the benefit of everybody. Uh, verse 12, for just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. Again, we have one spirit, many gifts. We have one body, many members. Some very important analogies for us. Of course, uh, chapter 13 is that great love chapter. So, you know, in, in the midst, you might not know this about 1 Corinthians 13 unless you read the flow. It's the p- reason he's talking about love is all this chaos and this favoring of one gift over another and, and favoring the prominent roles and, and just taking over and worrying about yourself. You and God, it's me and God. I'm just going to speak in tongues and, and not worrying about what is good for everyone else. That in the midst of that, he says, I'm going to show you a better way. And he talks about love. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. Again, kind of the chapter 12 stuff is, is played out a little more in chapter 14 in detail. What then, brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. Chapter 15, the great chapter on the gospel and the resurrection. Now I remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. And we're going to read from chapter 16 in a bit, but it's about giving collection to the saints and the missionary journeys coming up. So that was fast and furious, I know. We're going to look at it again in a, in a little bit, actually. All right, so there we are. So I know in my study, eventually I'm going to try to figure out some kind of major theme, or maybe there's a couple themes there. And what is running, what is driving Paul to hit all these things? What is he trying to speak to each of these? I mean, just at a first glance, some of these are kind of obvious. Chapter 3 and various roles. You've got chapter 12 and 14. You've got different gifts being used. Those are kind of easy to connect. But things like, what do head coverings have to do with eating food sacrificed to idols? That's not so clear in my mind. What does the Lord's Supper have to do with lawsuits and sexual immorality? That's not so obvious in my mind. 
I don't want to force it, but I want to try to consider, is Paul trying to, is there some theme that runs through that hits each of these and ties them together in some way? So that's kind of where I'm going eventually. I'm going to have to go pretty fast on the history, but th well, that's fine, because all the details are there for you, and there's lots of Bible help for you. So, does this have a pointer? I forgot to ask. I don't see one. Okay. Just kidding. Hey. Does that come through? Doesn't come through anyway. All right, so in Paul's first uh, journey, he kind of just goes in that area that is central and eastern Turkey, uh, Lystra, you know, Galatia, Iconium. So in the second journey there that we hear about in Acts, he says, hey, let's go visit the churches that we've visited. So he starts there, uh, just goes up into the Galatia, Cappadocia area. Uh, number three there is Phrygia. That's about as far as he goes, um, where he's visiting other churches. But now he's going to be taken. He's been forbidden by the Holy Spirit somehow to go to Asia. Circumstances change to Bithynia, and he's got that vision, remember, of the Macedonian call. So he goes over to Macedonia, where Macedonia and northern Greece are today. And now he's going to go through, we're very familiar with things like Acts 16, Lydia, the Philippian jailer, not the Filipino jailer, Philippian jailer, Berea, Thessalonica, these are names that we know. And he ends up down in Athens, that great speech in Acts 17 on Mars Hill. And then he's going to end up in Corinth there. You can see at the bottom left of that screen. So let's see, I don't know if I'll have time for all this. Acts 18. Should have had two Bibles up here. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. He found a Jew named Aquila, Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome and he went to see them. Because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. He reasoned the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook his, out his garments and said to them, your blood be on your own heads, I am innocent. From now on I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius, uh, Justice, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, to remember that name from 1 Corinthians 1, the ruler of the synagogue believed in the Lord, together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent. For I am with you and no one will attack you or harm you. For I have many in the city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God with them. So 18 months, that's a long time for Paul to spend in one spot. So he sits there in Corinth. Eventually he leaves, he plants a church in Ephesus, and he heads home. Uh, verse 23 of Acts 18. It's so subtle in here that the third missionary journey is coming. After spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next through the region of... Oh, so he went, when he landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. After spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia. So now we're on to our third journey. Yes, 50% chance. All right, so now you see that he goes up from Antioch there on the right side of your screen, uh, comes back over, and now he's going to go straight to Ephesus. And now he's going to plant himself at Ephesus for three years. Now there's a lot that happens in those three years. He writes two, maybe three letters to Corinth in that time of the four that we know of. Our Bible only has two letters. That's the second and the fourth letter that he writes. 
there are two other letters that we don't see, but he, re- he talks about those in his other letters. He also possibly, probably, most commentaries I saw, visits Corinth from Ephesus, and Acts doesn't talk about it. Because we know on the th- later it's going to be his third visit to Corinth. Those details I'm not going to worry about. This is where a commentary really helps. So when Paul, Paul arrives at Corinth, what, what is the culture? I forgot to talk about this on the second journey. What, what kind of culture? What, what are these people like? What are they, why is Paul choosing the type of analogies and the type of way he speaks to them? And I'm not going to know, so I'm going to go rely on the experts, right? So Corinth was definitely a dominant culture, cultural and uh, economic center in the Mediterranean. It was right there for land and sea trade, very, very prominent. There's a lot of wealth, a lot of disparity of wealth, a lot of slavery, especially in the sea trade. So all those images come up in what Paul talks to them about. It's a very Hellenistic culture, a very Greek culture. It had been founded by the Romans, uh, 50 BC, something like that. So it was recently become Greek, so it's a mix of those. In the Hellenistic culture, there was a very much an emphasis on the individual instead of the collective. So you kind of see that playing out in these divisions in the church. They care about themselves. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to decide whose team I can be on. They're very open to new ideas. That can be good for Christianity, not so much when things like the Gnostic heresy comes in. We don't need to go into that right now. They found themselves very superior to the uncultured barbarians. So again, a lot of division. They're into polytheism and paganism. Chapter 10 talks about you can't participate in the table of demons and the, participate at, and the table of the Lord. Uh, you know, and in chapter 8, he talks about you, you, you yourselves know that you were rescued, you were led astray to mute idols however you were led. But I'm telling you there's a new way in Christ. You're going to be led by the Holy Spirit. Athletic games were a big deal, as we know from the Olympics. Not here, but elsewhere in Greece. Chapter 9, he uses that analogy. In a race, every runner runs, but only one wins the prize. So run that you may win the prize. There's the temple of Aphrodite, served by a thousand pagan priestess prostitutes. So idolatry and sexual morality were completely linked. And so that's huge uh, as, he, as he talks about the table. A uh, lot about sexual morality. You've got, I mean, going to be a lot about Vegas. A lot like our modern culture. It's almost impossible to think that a young man who's 25 and comes to learn our culture is a virgin. No way. And a woman. There's going to be scars. There's going to be a history. There's going to be baggage. Very unlikely. And that's what he was dealt with. And the, there could be um, polygamy. There could be all sorts of things going on, right? And the church is going to, if we're, if we're, if we're going to go embrace a culture, all that's going to come in. And we need to be very, not just accepting, but very happy with that. But we need to be wise and pastoring as we, as we see people being saved. There was also a temple to Apollos that promoted homosexuality. We, we know he addresses that in chapter 6. All right. So in Corinth is where he writes the letter for Corinthians that we now have in our Bibles. All right, 1 Corinthians 16. We get a lot about the narrative also from the end of the letters. Romans 15 is this way as well. First uh, Corinthians 16, verse 5. I will visit you. So he's sitting in Ephesus, writing now their second letter. He says, I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia, and perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want, you to, s- for I do not want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits. 
but I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective work is open to me, and there are many adversaries. So you can see the people in Corinth must have heard, oh, he's spending three years at Ephesus? How come he doesn't come see us? He's right there. It wouldn't be that hard. Well, he's got a plan. He's following the Holy Spirit's lead. Uh, he wants to know, don't worry, I am coming to you. And of course, he does end up going through Macedonia and coming down. Okay. All right, let's jump back. Yes. All right, so now uh, I should have put the slide back up, but if you look back at those 16 kind of themes there, I'm going to look at that list, and I'm going to say, all right, what, is, what are the big themes that are driving? So I've, I've kind of grouped them by chapter. Now I'm going to say, are there like two or three chapters that speak to the same thing? And I jotted down a lot of things. There's a lot in here about Christian maturity, spiritual gifts, church discipline, clarity of the gospel, women's roles in church, the Lord's Supper, professional ministry, applicability of the Old Testament laws and the New Covenant. There's a lot of emphasis on the physical body. You know, the sexual morality, it, it matters what you do with your body. It's not just about your mind and your heart. Uh, the body and blood of Christ, very physical, very against the Gnostic views. Um, the, re the resurrection of the body is very important in chapter 15. Judgment, wisdom and knowledge. There's a lot about knowledge and keeps poking holes and deflating them. Like, I want you to understand, I, I don't want you to be ignorant because they're so inflated in their knowledge of themselves. He just keeps poking holes at them saying, well, you don't understand this and you don't understand this. So those are kind of the things. And then what I started to do, I started to group them together. Okay, so what are, okay, I want to I whittle this down, right? I'm trying to get to one or two major themes that I'm going to test. So the two that I came up with that I didn't go with was roles and gifts. There's a lot in this letter about roles and gifts, right? You've got Paul and Apollos doing different things. One plants, one waters. You've got all the different spiritual gifts, apostleship, prophecy, teaching, administrating, helping, and how that all works together. And then another one I saw was a lot about love and humility. Again, there's so much about their boasting and their arrogance, and they ought to be humble. We have the great love chapter. Um, you know, even in 1 Corinthians 16, by sending a gift to people you'll never meet, it's, it's a love for others. And I think all of those would be legitimate. But the one I settled on was unity. For me, that became, now at the heart of that unity, what the, is going to be love. Um, but I just saw a real call. Everything Paul talked about was the need for Christian unity. Now, that's primarily, when you think of Christianity, I th usually think of a horizontal aspect. And I think for the most part, that's what Paul is after. He's not, there are times that he's introducing very important doctrines, like the Lord's Supper. We don't know much about those doctrines elsewhere. And obviously, there's a, there's a call, just in chapter 1, a singular focus on Christ. So our unity is always going to be grounded on some kind of truth, uh, of a common truth with God, a common focus on Christ. But for the most part, even just from the milk that Paul is teaching them, they're screwing it up. They are not lacking in doctrine. They just don't apply what they already know. They're just suppressing the spirit within them. It's, it's quite basic, in a sense. And it's something that all of us are very prone to uh, in a church. So, I'm going to go back through my list. I won't go through all of these. And I'm going to say, all right, I'm going to test my hypothesis. And so not only am I going to say, well, did you get it right, Keith? Did you do pretty well about choosing a pretty good central theme? 
Um, but I'm also going to say, all right, what about the chapters that don't seem very clearly in a unity theme? It, can I reread those chapters with that in mind and maybe get a little new insights? And those are kind of the ones in red there that I came up with. I'll just cover a couple of those for the sake of time. So the first one, yeah, we saw the divisions in chapter one. We see the various roles, but we need to concentrate on God in chapter three. That's, that's kind of, oh yeah, that's unity. Confirmation, I, got, I might have got it right. There's no right answer per se, by the way. But apostles, he starts defending apostleship. Well, what does that have to do with unity? I guess there's a, a, a unity of authority that we can come under. That's kind of obvious, but I reread it and some of the things stuck out to me. Verse seven, what do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Like, what's creating their divisions is this arrogance, and they think they have some special knowledge, and they're just better than others. But everything they have, they've, they've received from the Lord. Everything you have. I'm a Calvinist. I understand salvation so much better than those charismatics over there. You received that from the Lord. For that to make you arrogant is just so contradictory. Glad I'm not guilty of that. I sent you, Timothy, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. Paul is, is teaching the same traditions, the same practices in all the churches. So it's not just unity in our bo local body, Spring Meadows, but there's a unity out there with all the churches. Oh, I, I didn't see that my first time through. So this is kind of helping me. Judging immorality. Chapter 5. You might think that disciplining people and not eating with them is the exact opposite of unity. And maybe I don't understand it my first few times thinking through it, but somehow Paul is promoting unity by telling you to separate from certain people. Wow. That's something I might want to sit and study and think about for a while. Purge the evil person from among you. So if, even if you don't understand it, I hope we're faithful as a church to follow that for the sake of unity in the future, for the great hope that they would come to reconciliation. And by the way, that person does. In 2 Corinthians, we see that. There's repentance. Oh, I don't have time for all these. Hopefully you get the idea. Let's see if there's anything else in here I want to say. Chapter 7, I kind of mentioned. It's... it's Sometimes we can be very individualistic with the way we read the Bible. Am I called to be married or am I called to be single? Now, there's an, that's an appropriate question. That's important sometime in your life. That's not mostly what Paul's after here. Don't despise those who live a different life than you in the church. In fact, embrace that diversity. Singles bring something to the church that married people can't. That ought to be celebrated and encouraged. We could go on. We have something on the website on that class. All right, hopefully you get the idea. That's what I meant by testing. Now, I want to do a little outside of my study. If you go back to 1 Corinthians 1, this might give us an idea of the different types of divisions and unity that he's talking about. Now, this is very, what's the word, Gwent? Speculative. Couldn't remember the word the other day. So I don't know when Paul mentions these four categories of people that what I'm about to say about each of them he meant to tie directly. But everything on the right side there are issues that he deals with in the letter. So if nothing else, as a, as a memory rubric, I'm going to tie them to the certain names. Well, the commentary I read did the same, so I'm still in his. Um, and certainly, even in our own experience, we know these type of people exist. And we are some of these people. 
So he talks about Paul. So obviously hero worship is a problem in general, right? And we're all prone to it. It's bad when we talk about politicians. It's bad about NFL quarterbacks in your church. It's bad about your favorite podcasts and, you know, poor local pastors. We're all going to our hero worship online and not sitting under the regular teaching of our pastors. So Paul, what might be the reason he mentioned Paul? Well, he's the originator. He's the founder. Like, he's a good name to drop. I was there in the beginning. Maybe people who are stuck in traditionalism, right? They don't want to see change. It's the way it's always been. He, he, he built it. He wasn't just one of the many waterers or the many guides of Christ. He is the one founder. He is our father in the faith. Maybe it's because Paul is so big on not being under the law and being free from law. So those who are antinomian, who are licentious, who just want to go do their own thing, they're going to run to Paul. He's my guy because he's not going to condemn me. He's not going to go preach law at me. Maybe it's because there were some super spiritual people here. You know, oh, I'm, I'm so good, I can be single. I don't, I don't have any problems burning in the flesh. So it's a super spiritual mentality that somehow I'm a upper-class citizen in the kingdom of God. So maybe that, those are the group of Paul. Apollos, uh, in Acts 18, we see that he was from Alexandria in Egypt, very, and he was an eloquent speaker. So we see that right, right there in chapter 1. Paul talks about the danger of following eloquent speakers. Paul wasn't one of those. So people who liked their ears tickled and wanted to hear a lot of Latin and Greek and Hebrew and hear all about the Reformation. I'm just kidding, kind of. You know, oh, I'm going to go to the guy that has all this knowledge, and that might have been Apollos. Uh, he might have been the source of Gnosticism in the church. Um, this, this, they had thought they had this secret knowledge, and, and part of that knowledge was the separation of the flesh and the spirit. And Paul is... He is just slicing through that stuff. Other letters in the New Testament talk about that more head on, but that might have been the source of it. The charismatic gifts. Um, you know, I've been speaking tongues. You don't know what I'm saying, but I'm praying to God. Paul's like, not in church, you're not. You keep it, that between you and God. Unless there's someone to interpret, you are here to build up the body. This is not about you. Not right now, it's not. Knowledge, chapter 8, he really gets them. You know, if anyone imagines he has knowledge, he doesn't know anything. But if anyone loves God, God knows him. A nice wordplay on the word, on know. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. <laughs> I'm sitting here memorizing this book, and I get to that verse, I'm like, ugh. Very puffed up, very easy. Chapter 13 again, if I understand all mysteries and all knowledge but have not love, I am nothing. Cephas, Peter. Well, Galatians is our cue. Perhaps the, the, the tribe of Cephas were legalists, and they wanted to, you know, impose the law. Again, the, he starts in the temple. We have Jews coming to Christ, and all these pagans that they stay separate from in their world, they're now worshiping with, and it's very hard. And you can imagine, this is, we, we have examples in our own life of this, People who are, who are very licentious live very immoral lifestyles when they come to faith. It's very easy for them to switch to legalism because they finally have a concept of holiness, and that's good. And they, they, they know they have a life of shame, and they want to cover it. And sometimes it's just so easy to cover it with a bunch of rules. But it's very common to do. So if you're out there street <laughs> preaching at the park and the street and they're coming to faith, 
that's something to watch out for. And maybe the, the team of Christ, we're no creed but Christ. We don't need, we don't need you, Paul. We don't need the, the apostles. They're the ones who are very anti-authority. I don't need to join my church. I'm just going to attend. I don't need to put myself under, under any authority. I don't need to put myself under any responsibility. Yes, I'm talking to some of you out there right now. I've been gone a long time. I hear we have a lot of new people. And I hear some of them for some difficult situations, church splits and such. Let me encourage you. Don't be a church wanderer. Try us for a little bit. If you're not going to stay, go find a church where you're going to sit and plant. If you're going to be here, I, I can't tell you a set time. If you don't join our church within a, the right number of months, there's so, something's wrong. Let me encourage you in that. Find a place. Plant yourself. Sit under the constant teaching of God's word and the sacraments and the fellowship. Put up with all the differences. You're never going to find a perfect church. <laughs> Quit wandering everywhere. And I don't even know your background. I just know my own experience. So let me encourage you in that. You can see Paul tiptoeing in these different discussions of Lord's Supper and head coverings and, and the law. You can kind of see he, he's aware of all these factions and he's constantly like, all right, let me make sure I stab this group. Oop, I got to stab this one too or they're going to think I'm on their side. It's very interesting. If you, and so with all this in mind, I go reread the book again with all this in mind. And you just, the insights start to come and come and it's really exciting. So... We're out of time. Yes. Um, that was a lot. I right now have two more planned. The fourth is open. If there is something in 1 Corinthians you'd like me to teach on, I'll at least consider it. So please let me know. Next week, how much do we pay our pastor? He's not here this month. Great time to slash his budget because Christian has taken over half of his work. So come for that. But no kidding, I think next week we'll also get to appreciate what is not just... We want to honor our leaders, but what is my place in that body? I think that chapter is going to give us a lot to go there. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for time that you give us to study. May we just get off of Instagram and chess and Bachelor Island and please help us to organize and discipline our lives. Uh, just, just grow steadily day by day, week by week. Help us to prioritize our time to come to church. Let those who are further along help us and teach us. And for those uh, maybe with young children or their circumstances really do eat up their time and, and pray that they wouldn't feel a bunch of guilt right now. Pray that you would, would help them just get what they can. Sing hymns and, and meditate on your word and make them faithful in the calling that you have for them right now. May we as a church not become divided with all this growth that we're experiencing. It's exciting. But may we, may we be unified in that growth. May you make Jesus and the gospel central in our teaching and in our lives. And may we be churned and broken to pour out ourselves to those around us. May we not sit there gaining a bunch of knowledge and without being able to sit and teach others and lead others and help them to grow. Help us to know our place in this body. But if we just simply love one another, if we can simply strive to excel in building up the church, that would be all we need. Be with the new elders and deacons as they take their roles and lead us in this. We look forward to Christians preaching. Help him in his time. I don't know the last time he preached a whole month. Help him in that, especially as he's busy getting ready for the ordination. Protect him. Be with Tim and Pam on their travels. May it be a true rest 
uh, for their marriage and for his ministry coming back to us. Thank you for everything you're doing in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.